We're in this study uh, where we're looking at uh, for the ne- for three weeks, last week, this week, and, and next week, uh, at Paul's shortest of his prison letters, letters he wrote while in his time in, in prison. And he writes this letter not to a church, not to a group of people, but to one individual, a man by the name of Philemon. And uh, on the heels of our study out of the book of Colossians, the teaching team thought it would be a good idea for us to spend some time looking at this letter because of the close connections that Philemon has uh, with the letter that was written to the Colossian church. For those that weren't with us last week, Philemon, we learned, was a citizen of the city of Colossae. He was one of Paul's converts uh, through the teaching of the Apostle Paul. And we learned that Philemon is a mature and growing follower of Jesus Christ who has a huge heart for hospitality. This is seen in the fact that we learn that Philemon has opened his home to the Colossian church to have their worship times and gatherings for opportunities for prayer and fellowship to take place, not in a building like this. They didn't have those in the first century, but it would happen in someone's home. And Philemon had the heart of hospitality to say, hey, let's gather as Christians here in the city of Colossae. Let's gather in my home, and I'm going to make sure that my home is ready and open so that the work and the people of God can come to worship and gather. Now we learn that Philemon was one uh, who had heard the message of Colossians, the letter of Colossians, and, and he was aware of the need for his salvation to be lived out in many different ways. In one way, I think Philemon would have opened his ears a little more, uh, would have been when Paul would have addressed the issue of slaves and masters, because Philemon was a master. He had slaves, he had household servants uh, that he uh, had under uh, his leadership and and guiding, and and even in some ways a level of ownership. And we've talked, and I'm not going to get into it, but we talked about the issue of slavery and how it differs between our understanding of slavery, and yet uh, we need to recognize that, that Paul has addressed this issue of slaves and masters, how Christian masters were to take care and minister to the slaves in their home. We don't know how many slaves that Philemon has, but we know of one slave that he has because he's named in this letter. His name is Onesimus. And Onesimus, uh, we know very little about. Outside of this book, we know nothing about Onesimus outside of the letter of Philemon. But we don't need a lot more than what we have. We know he's a slave. We know Philemon's his master. And at some point during their time as slave and master, Onesimus makes a decision that he's going to steal from Philemon, take goods or money, and make a run for it. And we know that, that what, Fi, or what Onesimus is going to do as he, as he steals this stuff is he's going to run to a city where he can hide, the city of Rome, with some 800,000 or so inhabitants. That's where fugitives went to hide. And Onesimus thinks, I've made it. I've got the goods. I'm no longer a slave under the master Philemon. I can do my own thing. And, and through his time at Rome, he comes into contact with, I'm sure, all kinds of different people And wouldn't you know it, one of the people he would run into is the Apostle Paul. And through the teaching of the Apostle Paul, through the leading of the Holy Spirit, uh, Onesimus would bow the knee to Jesus Christ. And then there would be some conversations that would take place where Paul would say, hey, Onesimus, where are you from? Hey, I'm I'm from Colossae, but I want to talk about it. You see, I, I stole from my Christian master. He had a church meeting in his house, Paul. It's called the the Church of Colossae. Paul says, I know that. 
Who's your master? Philemon. I know Philemon. Philemon, just like you, is a a convert to Jesus Christ through my teaching. Onesimus, what are you doing here? I, I stole from my master, Philemon. I can't go back. Even though I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, even though I want to make right uh, on the wrongs that I've done, there's no way I can go back to Colossae. There's no way I can make right with my master. And Paul writes this letter giving a word of reference, a word of, of encouragement to Philemon to receive Onesimus back to himself, not as a runaway slave, but listen, as we talked about last week, as a brother in Christ and a brother in the flesh. And so what we see in this little letter is an action-packed story of grace and love that focuses in on forgiveness and how forgiveness leads to reconciliation and how, as we learned last week, we as a people 2,000 years removed from this letter need that grace in our lives as well where we can forgive those who have hurt us and we can bring about reconciliation in our lives and in our relationships with others. And so with that this morning, last night, if you weren't here with us last week, I would say pick up a uh, sermon CD, go to our website, you can read the transcript there as well. Last week we talked about the mandate for forgiveness, why we as Christians are called to forgive. Today we're going to look at the method of extending, the how-to, how do we extend forgiveness, whether people deserve it or not. And then we'll talk next week about the motivation, if you will, of why we do such things. So let's look this morning with our Bibles open and our hearts receptive to Philippians chapter 8, verses 8 through 16 this morning. I'm going to ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to start in verse 4, and we're going to learn how we go about the biblical method of choosing forgiveness and reconciliation. Let's look at our text this morning. I thank my God always when I remember you, Philemon, in my prayers, because I've heard of your love and of the faith you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I've derived much joy and comfort from your love, Philemon, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though, I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required. Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to have kept him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might, be, uh, by compu- may, might not be by compulsion, but by your own accord. For this, perhaps, is why he parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, not as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in flesh and in the Lord. Father God, we come before you, 
And we are reminded again of the brokenness of our sin because of the brokenness of our relationships. There's no doubt this morning, Lord, many in this place who are struggling with this issue of forgiveness and reconciliation because we live in evil days. We live around evil and sinful people, and we ourselves are quick to harm others, even those we love that are closest to us. We need your grace. We need your truth this morning to teach us what it means to forgive as Christ has forgiven us and to learn by your word this morning how to do that because that does not come naturally to us in our human sinful state. So we need your inspired word to teach us and train us and to equip us for every good work, even if it involves forgiveness and reconciliation this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Growing up as a a child, I I loved to watch game shows, and one of my favorite game shows was The Price is Right. I don't know if it was the the rowdy crowd full of commotion, if it was the antics of Rod, the the announcer who who would say, come on down as the next contestant on The Price is Right. I don't know if it was the big money wheel, but I know this for sure. As a boy with ADD, it sure was a great way to spend a day off of school. But one of the best parts of the show that I really came to enjoy was what was entitled at the end of the show, The Showcase Showdown. It was where the two finalists of that given day's show were given a chance to pick amongst some great prizes that they could win if they got the price right. As a kid, I would dream as, as they would unveil, as the curtain would pass, uh, the, the new car, the, the new uh, wonderful once-in-a-lifetime vacation that was given, the, the beautiful cookware, you name it, I loved every bit of it. And I would begin to think what it might be like to be that contestant. But it wasn't the prize that won my heart. It wasn't per se all those great things, but, but the excitement of the decision that the contestant was going to have to make between one or two options. And I want to a- ask you this morning to enter into that for a moment. You've been asked to be on a game show. And the game show is not The Price is Right. The game show is called Forgiveness. And, and you're there, and the crowd is out amongst us, and your name is called down. Hey, Timbidal, you're our next contestant on Forgiveness is Right. Come on down, and, and, and you clap, and I clap, and I'm all excited, and this is great. And, and, and Bob Barker or Drew Carey or whoever now runs the show now says to you, okay, hey, man, you've made it, and your dreams are about to come true, and, and let's learn a little bit about yourself. Tim Bidal, what tell me about yourself. Well, I got to tell you, Mr. X, Mr. So-and-so, he's really offended me. He's really wronged me. He's hurt me. He's cut me deep. He's taken that which he should have never taken. He has done something to me that, that can never be forgiven, that never can be uh, justified. And, and, and I'm here to tell you, I'm a broken individual because of that moment in time, because of that issue that so-and-so has done to me. And then the voice over the loudspeaker say, well, Bob, what do we got for him? And the curtain opens up, and it's, it's the first option in your showcase studio. It's a showcase studio that's entitled Retaliation. And in this showcase studio, you get to, Tim, hold grudges. You get to malign the character of the offender. You get to speak ill of them. You get to seek out revenge. You get to make their life miserable. You get to make sure they never 
ever do that thing again to you or anyone else. In this showcase studio, you get to judge them as unlovable, unusable, useless, useless, and worthy of the worst of punishments. This prize package that's before you brings you great joy to your self-righteous and unloving heart, and it can be yours if you choose unforgiveness. You guys are a terrible audience this morning. (laughs) What fun. What revenge. What justice. It's going to feel so right. The sense of righting the wrongs. Bob, you don't have to show me the next showcase studio. That's what I want. That's what feels right. When someone wrongs me, I want that. Retaliation. Revenge. But then the announcer says, but wait, there's a second showcase studio, and this one falls under the heading of reconciliation. In this showcase, you can choose to be loving instead of bitter. You can choose to see the offender through the lens that he or she is a sinner, but so are you. You can choose to acknowledge that the wrong they have done is huge, but so are the offenses that you've done to God as well as others. In this showcase, you can show compassion and mercy. You can allow grace to flow in such a way that you speak words of love and kindness, that you're even willing to pray for the one who has wronged you. You see, in this showcase, you forfeit your chance for revenge, for self-righteous judgment, and you choose to do the harder, more godly thing. You choose to forgive. In that moment, what are you going to choose? Revenge, retaliation, or reconciliation? In our text this morning, Paul is pleading for his friend Philemon, a mature follower of God, to make a wise decision. And what Paul is telling Philemon this morning, and us today, is that you and I, we need to choose forgiveness. We need to make that choice, as difficult at times as that choice may be. Now, I know for many of us this morning, we would right away say from our cushy pews at Village Bible Church, we would say right away, I choose forgiveness. But let me remind you the sting of those things that are offensive to us. The things that hit us out of nowhere. We never saw them coming our way that have caused us great pain and suffering from the hands of another. You see, we're more often than not are not choosing forgiveness and reconciliation, but we by default choose revenge and retaliation. Oh, we do it passively, we do it aggressively, but in the end, whether we're passive about it or aggressive about it, we get our pound of flesh. And Paul says this morning, for the Christian, it is option number two always. No matter how difficult and how hard the road may be. It may cause you as a Christian to look foolish and naive. It may mean that you have to minister to those who have hurt you, but Paul says it's the right thing to do, it's the biblical thing to do, and it shows the world and our Father in heaven that you and I truly understand the forgiveness God has shown us in Christ Jesus. But how do we do it? We learned last week the mandate, We get it. We've got to do it. Forgive as Christ has forgiven us. We've got to do it. But how? 
In our text, there are three biblical steps to forgiveness this morning. And I want you to notice, first of all, forgiveness begins, write this down, forgiveness begins when we act out of a heart of love. When we act out of a heart of love. One of the first things that we learn about Philemon in our text is that he is a man who loves others. Notice verse 5 with me this morning. In verse 5 it says, I hear of your love. He's a lover. Notice, who does he love? He loves the Lord and all the saints. Notice down in verse 7, it says that Paul himself has derived much joy and comfort from Philemon's love. No doubt Epaphras had spoken well. Remember, Epaphras is the pastor of the Colossian church who, because of the Colossian controversies that were going on about who Jesus was and and how we were to worship him and, and live out that preeminence that we learned about in our study, Epaphras goes to Paul in prison to seek wisdom. And Paul begins to ask questions. Hey, tell me about the church. And, and Epaphras says, hey, let me tell you about Philemon. Man, Philemon, he's opened his home. And not only does he open his home and, and put out a nice sweets table after uh, church for fellowship, but he loves on people. I mean, his house is, is their house. And, and he opens it up and him and his wife, uh, man, they, they love on people and they care for people and they minister to people. And, and Paul is filled with joy. And he's deriving much comfort from this idea that one of the churches that he planted is doing Christianity the right way. And Paul says, okay, Philemon, I've heard this about you, and I know the spirit of the living God is alive and well in in you, and how do I know it? Because you love God and you love others. Paul's words to Philemon remind us of a passage in 1 John. Write this passage down, 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. And this could have been said of Philemon, beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God, and and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not love God or know God, for God is love. Paul says, I know you're a believer. I know you're a follower of Jesus Christ because you love God and you love others. Could that be said of you this morning? Could someone say, you know what? I know you're a follower of Jesus Christ because the way you love. You've got a big heart. You care about people. You, you long to minister to them, to be, as Paul said in, in verse 7, to be a refreshment to those around you. Now, many of us right away would say, well, yes, I'm a lover. I love God's people. I love my neighbors. I love my family. I love the strangers around me, I am genuinely a nice guy. And people would say very much so to that fact that 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 so-and-so is a lover of God and people. But how does that love work when someone has wronged you, when someone's hurt you? Philemon has shown himself to be faithful and loving people. But notice, God doesn't give curves to his grading system. And the model of perfection is Jesus. 
And Philemon's got a problem because Philemon loves people, listen, that it's easy to love. But Paul's gonna say, but what about that Onesimus? That guy that's wronged you, that guy that's taken stuff from you, that guy that made you look stupid, that guy that that has caused you not to trust people anymore, the one that took your stuff and, and ran, are you gonna love him? You see, Jesus reminds us that it isn't just to love the, the easy ones. It wasn't easy, it wasn't uh, hard for Jesus to, to love the children that came to him. Don't, don't, don't let the children uh, be kept from me. I, I just want to love on them. Man, Jesus, Jesus loved those that were easily lovable. But we notice that Jesus loved the unlovable, the, the leper, the prostitute. He loved those who were defiled and, and, and broken, who were thrown away by cultural standards. Jesus loved on them, filled with compassion. He loved the unlovable. And, and let's take it even farther. When they're nailing Jesus' hands and feet into the cross, Jesus is uttering words of love when he says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And Jesus shows us that it's easy to love the lovable. But can you love those whom from an earthly standpoint it may seem impossible? Paul says, I know you're doing a good job, but doing a good job serving the easy, lovable people isn't the mark of Christianity. But loving and praying for your enemies is. So how do you get there? How do you get to a place where, where you love on not only those that it's easy to love on, but those that it's difficult, those who have wronged you? I want you to notice that, that this forgiveness has to be our attitude. It has to be our attitude before it can be an action. Paul says in verse 21 of Philemon, go down there for a moment, confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. Paul says right away, Philemon, I know you're going to do the right thing. How does Paul know that? Because Paul acknowledges that Philemon is cultivating a heart of love. He sought to serve others and not himself. He sought to minister to the needs of those around him. He sought to love those in his midst. Was he perfect? Absolutely not. And for many of us, it is easy to love those, listen, who return some level of love back to us. But let me encourage you this morning as a Christian to start training yourself to love those it isn't easy to love. I'm not even talking about those who offend you for a moment. But to begin by opening your heart to love on people who may never return the favor. And little by little, as you show love to those who maybe are never going to love you back, you begin to expand your love to an ever-growing heart for people around you that maybe when the time comes, as your heart of love grows, you might be able at a time later in, in your life be able to forgive the most grievous wrongs done against you because your heart has expanded, that your attitude about love is then put into action at a moment's notice. But notice, until your attitude is that, your action will never be one of forgiveness and love. And if you think this morning, well, hey, I'll get it 
right when it happens. When someone wrongs me, I'll be ready to forgive them on a moment's notice. I don't have to work at it. I don't have to prep it. I'll just be ready. Let me tell you, that's idiocy. It's like me saying, hey, let's go run the Chicago Marathon. Okay? No. You can't just get up one morning and say, I'm going to run the Chicago Marathon. Okay? You got to train. You got to prepare. You got to be ready because if you're not, you're never going to be able to accomplish the goal that you have set for yourself. It's not going to happen. And neither will forgiveness unless you and I are growing a heart of love for others around us, listen, including our enemies. But notice, there's a second thing about this. Attitude needs to come before action. And number two, we need to recognize that this issue of forgiveness should be our desire, not simply our duty. Are we called, commanded, told to forgive. Yes, over and over again, it is a command. Jesus doesn't suggest it. Paul doesn't say, hey, if you get some time around, you got some time in your hands, then go ahead and forgive. No, you're going to forgive. It's a command. It's a calling. But notice what Paul says. He says in verse 8, accordingly, though I'm bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, meaning you got to forgive, Philemon. That's what Christians do. Paul says that's not the way to get to a heart of forgiveness. Why? Philemon, you don't need to just forgive because the Bible tells you so. You don't need to just forgive because that's what good Christians do. You don't need to just forgive because a Christian's duty is to forgive. You need to forgive out of a heart of love. Watch how this plays out for a moment. Someone has wronged you. And you're full of anger, full of frustration, full of sadness over what someone has done to you. And you say, I forgive you. And someone says, why? Because I have to. I don't want to. I don't embrace it. But I got to. So I forgive. Years ago, when our children were smaller, they would get in fights with one another. That's a lie that happens every day. (laughs) But when they were smaller, we would pull them apart because we thought that was good parenting. And we would tell them, say you're sorry. Seek forgiveness. You punched your brother. You can't do that. Tell him you're sorry, and you say you forgive them. Well, I'm sorry. Well, I forgive you. Okay, that worked. That put us up for parent of the year. No. While it is something we are commanded to do, listen, forgiveness cannot be done through gritted teeth. It needs to be done out of a heart of absolute love. Listen, don't have disclaimers a part of your forgiveness. I can't tell you how many times I've been in counseling where someone, offender, has sought forgiveness of, of someone who they've offended, and the offended says, well, I guess I forgive you. What do you mean you guess? You can't guess forgiveness. I'm sure glad Jesus didn't do that. Hanging on the cross, I guess I forgive them because I have to, because that's what the Savior of the universe does. He forgives. No, with hearts of compassion and mercy, hanging on that cross, he looked down to us in our helpless state and he said, Father, forgive them. I don't need to think about it. I don't need to guess about it. Forgive them because I love them. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. You can't clench your teeth and growl the words, I forgive you. You can't say, well, that's what good Christians do. Some of us think we're putting a prize on our chest, a medal by saying, you know what? I forgive because that's what a good Christian does. And because I'm a good Christian, I forgive. Hogwash. Good Christians love, and you're lacking that. So let's talk about how good your Christianity really is. So what does Paul say? Yeah, you're required to do it. And yes, as the preacher this morning, you're required. Listen, you're held accountable to forgiving. But God doesn't want you to do it out of a command. He noticed Paul says, I'm bold enough to command you in Christ to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. And Paul appeals on the sake of love. Listen this morning, this is very important. It should be the desire of every Christian to forgive when the time warrants it. You and I should look forward to it. It shouldn't be something that we have to be convinced about. It shouldn't be something we're coerced into doing. Forgiveness is not something where we barter back and forth with the offender. It's not filled with caveats. It's not filled with disclaimers. It is the desire of the heart. That is how Jesus forgave us. Jesus didn't forgive us and say, yeah, your sins are all taken care of. As long as you stay away from that one, as long as you're at church on Sunday, I'll forgive you as long as you try really, really hard not to do that again. I'll, I'll take care of your sin. No, he forgives and he extends that forgiveness to us. And that seems so counterintuitive as a culture. It seems so wrong. Why in the world would we extend forgiveness in that way? Why would we do it out of a desire? Are you kidding me? Why should I look forward to people offending me so that I can extend forgiveness? That's so messed up. But you know what? The Bible says a lot of messed up stuff. Consider it pure joy, my brethren, when you experience trials of many kinds. Wait a minute. When bad things happen, I should have a smiling face and be filled with joy? That doesn't seem right. The Bible's full of these paradoxes, right? When trials come, we should be filled with joy. Why? Because God's going to use that trial. And we'll talk about how God will use bad times in our lives as well. Now notice, Paul brings into the picture the gravity of the offense of Onesimus. Notice in the text, he says later on that uh, whatever Onesimus owes you, verse uh, 18, whatever he owes you, you can charge it to my account. Paul does not say this morning, Onesimus is innocent. Paul says he's guilty, guilty of sin. The dude stole from you, Philemon. I get it. But let's put it into perspective. Let's understand that what Onesimus did to you, Philemon, is not the end of the world. How does he do that? How does Paul begin to do that? You see, before I get to the how does Paul do that, that's what we do when, when people wrong us. We make a mountain out of a molehill. Now, now, please listen. There are some massive things that people have done in our lives that impact our life greatly. But I want you, whether the offense is small or large, this morning to ask the question, have I put it in the right perspective? Let me tell you, as a Christian, athletically speaking, athletically speaking, I 
strongly dislike LeBron James, okay? I love him as a human being. I hope he's with us in glory, all that. Athletically speaking, I can't stand his guts, okay? And one of the reasons why I can't stand LeBron James is every time someone breathes on the guy, he falls back as if someone's amputated a part of his body. (laughs) Drives me crazy, right? How many would agree with that, okay? Drives me crazy. There's some Christians in the house. (laughs) The drama, man, I... I want to throw things around the house because it just, get a grip, dude. You're like six feet, nine inches tall, 270 pounds of pure muscle. You're a thoroughbred, and you're whining about stuff like this. Let me tell you something. If you watch basketball, you fully recognize what I'm talking about. He's a flopper, right? He flops. Can I tell you this morning that many of us flop when people offend us? Someone does that. Oh my gosh, my arm! I can't, you look what you did! It needs a band-aid and you're going to the ER about it. You know what the Bible says when people do this to you and offend you? Love covers a multitude of sins. Get over it. And where there's bigger offenses, put it in perspective and recognize, listen this morning, this is so important that God didn't fall off his throne when it happened. And that the world is going to continue to move on. Does it hurt? Yes. Does it mean that it might involve even counseling and, and, and retri- um, not retribution, um, restitution? Re- too many R's. Restitution. Might it involve consequences for the offender? Yeah. Might it involve separation? Might it involve a breaking of, uh, of uh, a relationship as it was before? Yes. But we got to put this, we got to understand that this is in perspective. Here's what Paul says. Notice in, in verse uh, 9. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you. What did Paul say? Hey, hey, Philemon, get a grip. I love you, buddy. We're close. I care about you. But let me remind you, I'm old. Paul, man, he's laying it on. I was, uh, Josh Oren always says, as a, as a pastor, I lay it on thick. When we need something done, I go to Josh, and I, I guilt trip him into doing things. He's always, man, you're like peanut butter, man. You're laying it on thick, pastor. That's what Paul's doing. Paul's laying it on thick. And he's doing so for the sense of, in some way, saying, hey, Philemon, is your offense that you have really that bad? Let, let me remind you, I'm, I'm old. We don't know how old he is, probably at least in his 60s, okay? That's pretty old in first century times. Man, that's young these days, amen? Right? 60, man, it's like the new 20. I get it. I'm there. But for Paul, when Paul says he's an old man, he's not referencing, in essence, birthdays. What he's saying is, my life has been hard, I've I've lived a a difficult life. Let me just remind you, just write this passage down for the sake of time. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 28. Listen to what Paul's 60 years of time looked like. I'm talking like a madman, he says, which far greater labors, far more imprisonments, countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received the hands of the Jews, the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I was adrift at sea. 
on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger in the sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Paul says, okay, Philemon, I get it. You've had a hard life. Someone took some stuff from you. I know it hurts. But let's bring it into perspective. I've run for my life, and now, he says, I'm old, and I'm in prison. I wonder if Paul shook the chains that he had on him as he wrote this letter, saying, hey, hey, Philemon, you're not in chains right now, buddy. I get that Onesimus has really wronged you. I get it that he hurts you. But let's bring it into perspective this morning. Someone always has got it worse. Someone's always got a more difficult task before them. Does it make it any easier? No, I get it. It hurts. But we got to put this thing into perspective. Be careful, especially in the small offenses. Like someone taking something of value from you that you don't lose your mind thinking it's the end of the world. Paul says, hey, I've been able to forgive those. I wonder if Paul's thoughts went back to when he was holding the jackets of the religious Jewish zealots of the day who were stoning Stephen. And when Stephen, that first martyr of the faith, said, Father, forgive him. Philemon, you can't forgive Onesimus? My goodness, Stephen, the great martyr of the faith, forgave those who were throwing, raining down rocks on his head. He was able to forgive them, but you can't forgive what what so-and-so said about you? How so-and-so let you down? How so-and-so hurt you? You you can't release that? I am blown away by the reports of our brethren in the faith who are uttering the words forgive you in Arabic when people are cutting off their heads. And yet we struggle because someone looked at us funny at church and we say we can't forgive. It's too hard, too difficult. Get a grip, right? Let's put it in perspective. It's not as bad as we really think it is. Don't be a flopper. Every time you see LeBron James think stupid unforgiveness, okay? I love LeBron James. I pray he's in glory with us, but he's got to quit doing that. Okay? So we've got to step out and act in love. This is what love looks like. Attitude before it's an action. Desire, not simply doing it because we have to. Number two is a big one. We have to acknowledge that people can change. Are you kidding me? Look at verses 10 through 14. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus. First time we see Onesimus' name in the letter. I wonder if Philemon, when he was reading that, going, please don't talk about Onesimus. Please don't talk about Onesimus. Please don't talk about Onesimus. That's the last thing I want to hear is Onesimus. First time he's mentioned. Whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I'm sending him back to you. I want you to understand. Picture this for a moment. Tychicus is the one that hands this letter to Philemon. Tychicus is the one who hands the letter to the Colossian church, probably to Philemon as well. So he hands this letter. He says, hey, I've been with Paul. Here's a letter Paul has for you. 
it says that I've sent him back to you. Onesimus is probably standing outside. I wonder if Onesimus is there, knees knocking. Hey, Tychicus, go in there, kind of feel Philemon out, okay? If he looks angry, don't hand him the letter yet, okay? Get him some food, get him ready. I just, hey, hey, and then come out and tell me the coast is clear. If not, I'm running again. My goodness, I don't want that guy coming after me. So Philemon, Paul is so confident that Philemon's going to receive Onesimus back that he sends Onesimus with the letter. And he acknowledges something that, Ones- or that Philemon needs to see. I wonder when Philemon's reading this letter, he opens it up, he begins to read it, and Philemon says, don't bring up that deadbeat Onesimus. Even the name makes my skin crawl. It makes my blood boil. All that I did for that scumbag, and what thanks do I get? I wonder if that was what Philemon was doing. Let me tell you, I'm going to assume some of it because he's a sinful man, and that's what comes in my head a lot of times. Are you kidding me? Paul wants me to forgive him? How do we forgive when those feelings are so raw and wounds are so deep? We do so when we make a conscious decision that people are able to change. Listen, people don't remain the same. Think of for a moment all the dumb things you've done in your life, especially when you were younger. Did you stay there? No. You grew up. You matured. You wisened up. And this may be a hard truth for some of us to swallow this morning, but so have others. We're maturing. God's changing us. He's using circumstances in our lives to make us different, to to make us a little uh, more like an adult, to not make those difficult decisions. I understand that it's hard for many of us to get beyond the pain of being wronged, but we must be, be willing to acknowledge the truth that people can change. And here's the thing, I'm preaching to the choir about that. Because if anybody's gonna understand that people can change It's Christians. My goodness, this morning we have sung about, we've prayed about, we are preaching about, affirming and endorsing a faith, listen, that makes old things new, sinful things holy, and foolish things wise. The very words that we're devoting our preaching series to are the words of a man who hunted down Christians and sought to destroy the name of Christ with his adult life, but he changed. And we're willing to give Paul the benefit of the doubt that he changed, but are we willing to give to those who have wronged us the benefit of the doubt to see the change in them as well, even at times if it's small? How do you do it? Number one, bring in an outsider. The only Onesimus that Philemon knew was a fugitive runaway slave, a thief. The last he saw of Onesimus, the last remembrance in his mind of Onesimus is one man running away with stolen property. The very mention of Onesimus has become synonymous with a loser and a thief. But this wasn't true of the Onesimus Paul knew. Paul saw a different man. He saw a changed man. He saw a transformed man. He saw what he wrote in the book of 1 Corinthians, that in Christ a man is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. 
Paul says formally in verse 11, he was useless. But now when he is indeed useful, not only to me, he says, but also to you. Paul says later in the text, I would love to keep him with me. He's serving people. He's helping people. He's a refreshment. Philemon, listen, it's a hint to Philemon. Philemon, Onesimus reminds me of you. I wonder if Philemon threw up in his mouth a little bit there. You're kidding me, right? That thief, that scoundrel, he reminds me of you? Come on, Paul. Yeah, he's been a refreshment to many. Paul goes on in verse 12 and he says, Onesimus isn't just a helper. Look at verse 12. He says, I'm sending him back to you. Listen to how he describes it. I'm sending my very heart. I looked at everything that Paul writes about his friends. And never does he say of anyone else, Timothy, Barnabas, John Mark, Demas, Luke. I mean, all of those people that he always, man, they're great, great people, men and women of the faith, man. They're, they're doing a great job. They're, they're nailing it. He never says, I'm sending my heart. Paul says, man, you're taking a part of me away from me. I'm going to tell you one person in my life that I would speak about that, and that would be my wife, Amanda. That's my heart, Okay? And Paul is saying this relationship that I have with, with Onesimus is so strong, so resolute. It is, it is so wonderful. I don't want to give up this friendship. Man, you're taking a part of me away. But I want to do this because you need to forgive your brother. You need to make right with this guy. And Paul says this thief, this runaway, is so near and dear to me. Yeah, he's a co-worker. Yeah, he's a friend, but he's my very heart. Paul gives a glowing report to Philemon of this man, Onesimus. The best reference anybody could give. And you know why? Because Philemon and you and I this morning, we need another pair of eyes sometimes to change our perspective about people. Because what we do, as I told you before, we just keep revisiting the offense that's been done. And we just keep... and. and you know what we do? We make it bigger, right? We're like fishermen when it comes to acts of unforgiveness in our lives. The fish was this big, but then when we get home, it's this big. When we tell our buddies, it's this big. When our grandchildren, yeah, grandparents, when our grandchildren hear about the story, the fish is this big. Well, the issue Philemon had was this big. But as time grew, I wonder, like it does with many of our things, we exaggerate it on to the point that, that where we're at today is, man, that scoundrel, man, he took this much. He did this. It hurt so bad. I didn't think I was ever going to make it through that time. Paul says, hey, Philemon, you're not seeing the same Onesimus as I am. We need to be unwilling. We need to be willing to sometimes admit that our perspective is slighted and out of the realm of reality. And be willing to hear from another person who says, hey, I think you need to give this person another chance. They're a different person. They're changed. But maybe you don't have anybody around there so, that can tell you that. So what do you do? Number one, you, or number two, you take an optimistic viewpoint. Just as a quick aside, and I'm going to spend a lot of time here, 
But how does your opinion of someone change? It begins and ends with love. And in 1 Corinthians 13, 8, we are told of some of the characteristics of love. Love bears all things, but even more important, it believes all things, and even more important than that, it hopes all things. So let's put it into the perspective of someone who has hurt you. Mr. X has hurt me. And I hope he changes. Not so that he will see the error of his ways or, or see how much of a rotten, filthy scoundrel he was. No, I pray that Mr. X changes so that he can fully embrace the grace and love and blessing that comes from a relationship with Jesus Christ. I want Mr. X to experience the love and compassion and mercy that I've experienced. Love hopes that, even when someone has wronged you. Instead of making reconciliation difficult for one, setting up this ideal scenario, I will forgive when I hear, you know, and there's the bullet points of what you're going to do. If I see this, that we would become like the prodigal son's father, who at the very glimpse, without the prodigal son saying a thing, he sees his son coming home and he goes running to embrace that man, that son who had wronged him so much. Love hopefully anticipates the change in others. Praise for it. It's willing to affirm it even when small attempts or steps are made that you embrace it. They're trying. The next thing you need to do is be open to being wrong. I'm speculating a little bit, but I wonder in the time since Onesimus was gone that Philemon had done his sharing of speaking ill about him. Listen, speaking truth, that Onesimus stole from me. After all that I did for Onesimus, sitting around the table, and someone says, hey, I haven't seen Onesimus around for a while. Where's, where's good old onesie? Where is he? Oh, that scoundrel, he stole from me. He went running like a coward. He went running. All that I did for him, all that I sacrificed for him, I gave him a place over his head. I, I took care of him. He had food. He had drink. He had all that he needed. He had a job. He didn't have to worry about people coming, taking him away. He had the life. I gave it to him. And what does that guy do, man? He's worthless. He ran away. He's a bad dude. All of that's true. True, 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 true. But... As Christians, we are called to speak the truth in love. Yep, he was worthless. Yep, he was unworthy of a second chance. All that's true. Yes, 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 yes. But so were we. And I wonder if Philemon says, if I see that guy again, you just wait. He's going to be sorry. He's going to get a piece of my mind. I'm going to let him have it. Only to have a letter handed to him from a close friend who says he's a new man. He should be forgiven, and he should be received as a brother, not a slave. Wait a minute, Paul. What might people think? Might they say I'm enabling? Might they say I'm naive? The world tells us that people don't get a second chance. It might mean, listen, you have to eat some humble pie. Philemon may have to eat some of his words when he sees Onesimus. I wonder when Philemon sees Onesimus that Philemon isn't convicted by the Holy Spirit to say, hey, before you apologize, I got some things I got to apologize for. I've spoken ill of you. I said you would never change. But you have. I 
was wrong. You're something special. You're of great use to the kingdom of God. You're a brother in Christ. Some of us are unwilling to show forgiveness because maybe it means us having to ask forgiveness of the very people who have offended us. To say that maybe we're sorry for some things. But if, what if that doesn't happen? What if reconciliation is impossible? What if the person never changes? What if that person, last week I had a, a woman in our church who, who came up and she says, powerful message. I didn't like it. Powerful though. I didn't like it. And she said, my dad's dead. How can I get reconciliation now? What do I do with that? Well, Paul helps us in this. Maybe that issue of reconciliation can't happen. Maybe the one who's wronged you is no longer around, maybe in your geographical area. Maybe you don't know where they're at. Maybe there's so much water under the bridge, if you will, that that the distance between the two of you may never mean a reconciliation of things like they used to be. I want you to hear this very clearly this morning. God still wants us to forgive. It may take time, but he wants us to get there. So how does that happen? My final point, and I'll move quickly through it, is that reconciliation must happen, even if it's difficult, and it happens because we affirm the sovereignty of God. Paul says, and he speaks of God's sovereignty in this way in verse 15. For this, perhaps, is why Onesimus was parted from you for a while. That you, Philemon, might have Onesimus back forever. No longer a slave, but more than a slave. A beloved brother. Paul says that God's sovereignty is at work. The, the idea of God's sovereignty, for those maybe not as versed in, in theological terms, is that God's in control of all things. We believe that. We affirm that. God is not sitting there going, I wonder what's going to happen tomorrow. God knows it's going to be a sunny, bright day over the city of Waterman so that we can have a blast at the Memorial Day picnic. He knows it, and you need to know that as well. But God's in control of all things. And God has a plan for the good, the bad, and the ugly of your life. I know there are some who think, man, Tim, this is easy for you to preach. You have, don't, you have not experienced the things I have. Without getting into details, I have an offense in my life that has hung over me, done by another, and it's hung over me for years. It has brought the greatest difficulty into my life. It has caused been a cause for me to head on trajectories that have brought great difficulty and circumstances in my life. If I had the ability to jump in a DeLorean and go back to a place in time, it would be to that very moment where something would have been done so it would be different. I've carried it. I've cried over it. I have been depressed about it. It has haunted me for years. And listen, I don't know where the, offended per, or the offender is at today. I can't get an I'm sorry. I can't go back and change things. I can't go back. I don't know if the offender's remorseful. I don't know if they've changed. I got nothing. So if you think that I don't understand what I'm preaching about and the implications of it, you are sorely mistaken. But here's what I know. 
Even though from an earthly standpoint, I can't tie that thing up into a knot, a big bow and make it all right. Here's what I know that God does. Sometimes, listen, this is important. Sometimes God allows people to offend you or hurt you or someone you love, number one, for a greater good. For a greater good. I don't have time to get into this story. i got to finish up. Joseph was harassed and hurt by his brothers. They did the unthinkable. Genesis chapter, I believe, 48 through 50 tells the story. They've ruined his life. Never do they say they're sorry until the very end when their, their fannies are on the line. After the fact... They've been wrong. He's been wronged. He's been hurt. He's been put in prison. He's been sold. He's been told. His father's been told he's dead. They, they traded him in. I mean, that's a pretty big thing. I got to be honest with you, it's probably more than your standard issue offense on a Sunday morning, right? And Joseph reminds us of a hard but incredible truth. What man intends for harm, God uses for the good. And maybe this morning, you've got an offense in your life that you can't give up to forgiveness. You say, it's too hard, and, 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 and the person isn't here to say they're sorry, and, and i, I got to tie this thing up in a bow. i got to be able to release this thing. And, and there's no answer. Until I have an answer, I'm not going to forgive. Here's your answer in those moments. What man or woman intended for your harm, God has an intent or use for good. Your pain and your hurt might be given to you so that others might be blessed through it. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought, Paul says, that you might comfort those because you yourself have been comforted in your hour of need? That you might strengthen others, you might encourage others. I wonder if there was any consolation when, when Joseph thought of the horrors of his early life, how they were somehow healed when he saw the silos being filled with the grain that were going to keep a nation, including his wife and two children, fed during seven years of famine. That his old father would live to see another day because while he endured a hard growing up experience, God used that and positioned that as difficult as it was to put him in a place that he might be a blessing to others. But for Joseph to do that, he had to take his eyes off of his own hurts and recognize God's got a bigger plan. It's used for the greater good. But I gotta be honest with you, as a pastor, my hurt, my pain has not, in my eyes, it, I don't know what greater good it's done. Be quite honest with you, as I counsel others, in the pains that they struggle, I don't see some greater good. I see a lot of hurt. I see a lot of wrong. I see a lot of injustice. So what do I do with that? The Bible tells us that sometimes God allows people to hurt us and offend us, not only for a greater good, because we've got to be honest with you, Joseph's the exception, not the rule. But he does it to grow us through suffering. Does this mean all our stories are going to be like Joseph's? Nope. So what do we do? We affirm that God uses suffering in our lives to make us more like his son that we endure hardship like a good soldier and allow that suffering to make our hope, listen, our hope for eternity all the more sweeter and stronger. It allows us to have an opportunity to cast our cares on Jesus because he cares for us. God uses suffering as a tool to grow us 
And it isn't easy. But, but my friends, that's why we consider pure joy, my brothers, when trials of many kinds come. Why? Because it produces character, and character produces hope, and hope produces perseverance. It grows us. It builds us. It, it makes us stronger. And maybe that situation, that moment in time, that abuse, that struggle has happened in your life. And, and, and it's not so that you can one day say, woohoo, now I get the whole picture. You will in glory. But on this side of glory, maybe you'll never see it. And maybe the reason why is God says, hey, because I know that the way I grow people is to cause them a little pain, a little sorrow, so that they keep their eyes on Jesus. One final way is he uses hurts and offenses of, by others to guide us back to him. I think back to the history of Israel. They were offended. They were hurt by other people, other nations. They were ravaged, decimated. At times, it seemed like God empowered their enemies to pound on Israel. And he did. And he does in some ways, like in our situations, for the same reason. He brought issues into Israel's life just the same way he brings them into our lives. He allows bad things to happen to us so that he can guide us back to himself. You see, without suffering... We have no need to cry out to him. Without suffering, we have no need to run to him. Without suffering and turmoil, we don't need to draw near to him. Without suffering and turmoil and, and offenses and hurts, we have no reason to cling to him. I don't know why God allows good things to or bad things to happen to good people. I, I don't know, but this I do know is true. None of it caught God off guard or unaware, and he plans to use it in ways you would never imagine. And maybe you won't see it in this life, but you will know it and you will experience it when he wipes away every one of our tears and ushers us into the kingdom and we can stand before him and say, just as you forgave me, Jesus, as hard as it was, as difficult as it was, I forgave that person so that at this moment I could hear, well done, good and faithful servant. So in the meantime, trust God and his ways and forgive Act out of love, acknowledge people can change, and affirm God's sovereignty. And in time, step by little step, day by little day, with the help of God and others, you'll be able to forgive as Christ Jesus has forgiven you. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you, and Lord, we have shared together a mouthful this morning. And I pray that you and your spirit would do a work in our lives, that we would really look at our method of forgiveness and ask the question, are we doing it according to our agenda or to the agenda of Scripture? I pray, Lord, that your Scripture would be our guide. It would hold us accountable. It would move us and, and push us even to do the uncomfortable things so that we might have a right relationship with you and that we might have a right relationship with others. Expand our heart this morning to be lovers, not fighters. Expand our heart to, to see people, even when they hurt and wrong us for who they are, souls that are vitally important to you and should be to us. Lord, I know that there is a lot of stuff surrounding the hurts that people have done, the garbage that, that all of this conjures up. But I know that you are faithful to deal with it. And so, Lord, I give you my hurts and my offenses, and I put it in your hands, knowing you do all things well.
and I release it to you to repay, for you to avenge, for you to do your work because you do so without sin. And I pray that for every person here so that they might receive forgiveness in their hour of need. Now, Lord, send us forth from this place in a world that's going to hurt us, that's going to wrong us, and I pray that that heart of love and forgiveness would be seen even this week in our comings and goings. We love you. We praise you. Now, send us forth in peace to fellowship with one another. It is in Christ Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen.